Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Connecticut's magnet school and open choice system is viewed as a success by other school districts in the nation, school districts which are wrestling with segregated schools. Connecticut's $3 billion network was born out of a 20-year-old court decision known as Chef versus O'Neill. Did the Chef case accomplish what it set out to do? Integrate Hartford schools and provide quality education for all students? Today, where we live, we sit down with Hartford Current reporters who worked on an investigative series about the Chef case. Later, the principals of two Hartford schools will join us, and we'll ask one of the original parents who sued Connecticut about whether she thinks Chef accomplished its original goals. In a state that still wrestles with how to allocate funds to school districts in poor and rich communities, what do you think is a chef's legacy? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at wmpr.org. As always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome into the studio now Vanessa Della Torre, reporter at the Hartford Current, and Matthew Kaufman, investigative reporter at the Current. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks. I wanted to start with some news this week when uh, Governor Malloy uh, spoke to the Current, uh, and he said, quote, he's lost faith in Connecticut's nationally touted school desegregation efforts. He believes it would be in the best interest of Hartford students if Chef versus O'Neill returned to court. So, Matt, can I ask you uh, the timing of those remarks and why now? Uh, well, the state has been in sort of near continuous negotiations with the plaintiffs over how to implement the court's ruling. The Supreme Court said desegregation is illegal. Now, state, come up with a plan to fix it. Um, and basically, we've had 20 years of negotiations over that. Those negotiations have not gone well in the last several, year. there some, uh, several years. There's something of an impasse. Uh, there is a uh, stipulated agreement that expires in June. Um, and I think our series didn't sort of create the governor's opinion, but I think made him think this is a good time to go public with it um, and his sense that the uh, stipulated agreements that we have have not helped Hartford children um, and that there may be a better way. Plaintiffs feel that may have more to do with money than actually serving uh, black and Latino children in Hartford, but nevertheless, we are at a place I don't think anyone would have guessed we would be 20 years ago, where we're now thinking we have the top elected official saying maybe it's time for a reset, maybe it's time to go back to court and get uh, a new path forward. The chef case is certainly complicated. Um, if you could update our listeners, Matt, about you know what were some of the complications in terms of this idea? We know that schools should be integrated, but the getting that balance has been difficult. And you mentioned earlier that the plaintiffs and the state have gone back to court several times in this past twenty years to try to figure out um, how to meet these goals. What how, what has been the problem? Uh, well, the problem is race and class in America. I mean, these are problems that are, are deeply seated in kind of the DNA of the nation, maybe the DNA of the species. Um, and so there are challenges. You know, uh, Hartford has been concerned about working on school desegregation for decades and decades before, uh, you know, Milo Schaff or Elizabeth Horton Schaff uh, were born, the, the main plaintiffs in the case. Um, so by the time the Chef case was brought, 
uh, Hartford schools were overwhelmingly black and Latino and surrounded by uh, suburbs, most of which were overwhelmingly white. Um, there were early calls for maybe dissolving district lines, for perhaps combining Hartford, West Hartford, uh, and Windsor into one school district, for creating these sort of super schools of 20,000 students that would draw students regionally. Um, this is not something that the people of Connecticut, a very progressive state, have ever uh, truly gotten behind. So Chef has made uh, enormous progress, has, has great successes it can point to, and it's why it's seen as a national model. Um, but we still have most Hartford children in illegally segregated schools, um, and some disagreement and, and unwillingness, certainly among uh, the suburbs, to kind of fully participate and fully you know, open their arms. No one in the suburbs supports regional education, and that's a bit of an exaggeration. Um, and there's only limited uh, you know, tolerance or acceptance of Hartford's open choice program that sends Hartford students out to the suburbs. So these are very, very thorny issues that the state, uh, you know, continues to deal with and, and I think will for quite some time. Now, M Vanessa, you did some reporting on this series as well as Matt and other uh, Hartford current reporters. Where do you begin when you want to look and, and really focus in on how the system is really playing out? Well, I mean, first of all, you have these amazing magnet schools that were created as a result of CHEF. I mean, schools built for integration, built to attract white families from the suburbs. You have schools in Hartford, such as Breakthrough Magnet, whose principal, Julie Goldstein, is going to come on later on the show. You know, they have a mindfulness room. It's a national magnet school of the year from 2015. You have another Hartford school called Annie Fisher STEM. You know, they send space, you know, experiments. Uh, they have, there's a school called Mary Hooker. There's a waterfall in the, in the lobby. There's a planetarium. There's a butterfly vivarium. All these amazing amenities. And so that's not in question. And, but what is, is what's happened to those other schools in Hartford, the neighborhood schools that are more segregated now than they were when the chef suit came about. These are schools such as Milner, which we took a deep look at in our first story. Schools that are high poverty do not have anything close to those amenities. You know, some of these magnet schools, they have resident scientists there to teach the children. You know, Milner struggles to get a certified science teacher, period. Um, so that's kind of what we looked at. We wanted to look at Milner as a lens into the neighborhood school experience in Hartford. Schools untouched by the $3 billion spent on Chef. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. That's Vanessa Della Torre, reporter at the Hartford Current. Also, Matt Kaufman here, investigative reporter at the Hartford Current. Earlier this month, they published a series of stories looking at the Chef case 20 years after the original court decision. Uh, what do you think Chef's legacy is? Do you have students in a magnet, a Hartford magnet school, or do you have a child that's going, that's in the open choice system? We want to hear from you, too. 860-275-7266. Uh, Matt, I mentioned a little bit earlier this is a complicated issue. Um, talk about the process. Why is it, why is it very difficult to not only um, attract uh, white and Asian students into Hartford, but as uh, Vanessa mentioned, you know, there are schools like Milner where st students are struggling, and if they want to get to a magnet school, why can't we just snap our fingers and, and help them get there? Right. So 
there are only so many seats in the magnet schools and only so many seats that the state will pay for. Um, but it becomes more complicated because there is a desegregation standard. Um, and so uh, under the voluntary system that was set up uh, to be considered integrated, um, a school needs at least 25% of its population to be uh, not black or Hispanic, so white, Asian, Native American, Pacific Islander. Um, therefore, you need to attract... Uh, it, Hartford is is nearly 100% black and Latino in the public school system. Um, so you're going to need to attract whites and Asians from the suburbs. Um, and you need to do that in fairly large numbers in order to get to your 25% white and Asian. Uh, we have, you know, the way Connecticut is set up, it's not unique, but I think it's... it's uh, more extreme than, than a lot of states, um, pockets of enormous need and poverty in the center cities, um, surrounded immediately by many, many wealthy, predominantly white communities with really good school systems. And so you need to entice those students uh, and those families to leave their really good school systems in the suburbs and come into a magnet school. Um, and in particular, uh, enticing those families to come into magnet schools located in Hartford uh, has been a real struggle. And so many schools have not met that 25% desegregation standard. So thousands of students in Hartford are left on wait lists. If you had unlimited funds and snapped your fingers and built 10 more magnet schools, you could fill those 10 schools, but you couldn't make them integrated. And so your series uncovered what was happening in terms of the lottery. So because they need to get that certain quota of suburban kids coming into Hartford schools, if they accepted too many, then the balance would be off. And so you found out that certain uh, students in Hartford that are applying to these magnificent magnet schools aren't getting those seats because of that worry about the imbalance. Right. It's sort of described as a random lottery process. And, and what we found is that it, it was really anything but uh, random, both in, in the way students are initially drawn and then the way seats that open up, say, over the summer are filled off the wait list. So, um, you know, a random lottery, every name goes in, you pull a name out and, you know, first one's in, second one's in. Um, but we found, um, and, and some of this is known, some of this was not, that there are protocols and preferences that they put in place to sort of tilt things in favor of Asian and white families. So, um, for example, um, one that was not advertised is communities uh, that simply have more white applicants uh, will get preference over um, uh, you know, applicants from a town that they have more minority applicants. So, you know, the, the town like Cromwell, um, applicants from that town might be drawn before any applicants from Bloomfield uh, are taken. Um, somewhat more uh, shocking, um, I, I think, from folks we've talked to, is how at some schools the wait list is handled. Um, that at some schools, if there are open seats in a particular grade, uh, principals trying to reach that sort of magic 25% uh, quota, um, actually look at the race and ethnicity of the next students on the wait list. Um, and if the next student, uh, you know, scheduled to come in based on the lottery is a white student or an Asian student, that student will get a seat. If the next student or the next several students are black or Latino, uh, they won't get a seat and they won't even fill the seats. So they will have empty seats in these high-quality magnet schools while they send black and Latino children kind of back to their neighborhood schools. Were they white, they'd get a seat. Because they're black and Latino, they're sent back to their neighborhood schools. Um, nobody likes that outcome.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're getting a lot of calls right now. I want to take one. Uh, LaToya is calling from Hartford. LaToya, you're on the show. Hi, I'm LaToya. And, you know, I have a child that's in uh, Choice that attends Avon School. She's been attending Avon since uh, kindergarten, actually. And, you know, I know that the Chef versus O'Neill uh, case was to desegregate, but I feel like we've also missed a focus on the quality of education because not only do we need to integrate those schools in Hartford, but it's the quality of education. And I can say honestly, with my daughter attending Avon, the test scores shows for themselves as well as her grades. She is exceeding her peers in Avon. Uh, she's exceeding the school district goals in Avon. And when I look at some of my other friends who have children attending Hartford schools, they're still behind. They're still a year behind what my daughter is learning in Avon. So I just feel like we can put all the magnet names on these schools in Hartford. It's the quality of education that is missing. So until we can address that, I, I, I am never am going to be a fan, actually, of the magnet school thing in Hartford. It is, I'm just not seeing the results. I'm not seeing the quality of education go up. We just are putting themes on these schools, bringing kids in, but the, the test results are not really showing me any different. All right, LaToya, thank you for your comment. Uh, I wanted to find out a little bit more about, again, something that she is talking about, Vanessa, in terms of the schools that have been able to integrate. What have been the, the achievement for students? Are we seeing an, an improvement? Well, typically, minor schools have much higher test scores than in neighborhood schools. But one of the issues that the caller raises, here you have a, a girl from Hartford who is higher achieving, and she went through open choice to a school in Avon. She presumably used to attend a neighborhood school in Hartford. So this is one of the, people don't like to talk about it, but a byproduct of the chef ruling, in a sense, you have neighborhood schools that have become more segregated with need because you have some of the, some of the brightest students have left to magnet schools and open choice. So you have schools such as Milner that, you know, the school has been losing students for years. Enrollment has dropped. A lot of those students have gone off to these other options. But here you have a school that now is, has a high concentration of need. You have students who are high poverty, dealing with trauma, toxic stress in their lives. And that has created a situation where there's an overwhelming sense of what do we do now? There's just every day there are issues. Um, there's high teacher turnover. There's burnout. And you have, you know, classrooms where there are a number of students with high needs. And the teacher, the classroom teacher, you know, she might have, you know, a student who is extremely bright in the class. But when you have seven or eight students who are four grade levels behind, who are you going to focus your attention on? Um, one of the things that I learned through the reporting is that the teachers themselves uh, feel a, some sense of guilt that they can't, you know, show all of that focus and attention on some of the brighter students. And that lends to a conversation of not only does the school not have as many amenities as magnet schools, but what about the, just the overall lack of opportunity for these students in neighborhood schools such as Milner? 
We started the segment, uh, Matt, talking about uh, Governor Malloy's recent comments that um, the, the fact that you have this uh, suppression happening where certain students who are trying to get into magnet schools can't because of that imbalance. Um, and it, now we hear the governor and, and others pushing for, you know what, we need to shift more of state aid to school districts like Hartford um, and less to wealthier suburbs. Um, is how I mean, how do you feel like people are looking at that um, debate when they look at the example of Hartford, when they read your stories where you see these, almost these two uh, systems of education in the schools, despite all of these resources, billions of dollars spent uh, to improve uh, schools within Hartford, to get suburban kids into Hartford um, to, be, to help integrate? Yeah, I mean, it's tough. We haven't solved the, the riddle of education. And, and, you know, this is sort of this continuous moving model of, of what's the right way uh, to educate kids, what's the right way to educate kids in, in a high poverty um, city. And unfortunately, it's one of those topics, I think, that anyone has an opinion on whether or not they know what they're talking about, whether or not they've ever set foot um, in a Hartford school, um, you know, have any sort of sense of as Vanessa mentioned, uh, what happens when there is a high concentration of need, when there is toxic stress, when there are all sorts of other factors uh, that affect education that a teacher and an administration only has so much control over. Um, so some of this may be, um, you know, it, it, there was great excitement when Chef first came out, um, you know, before anyone had to worry about the, the devil in the details. Um, and I think what has played out, again, not taking anything away from the great success that, uh, that Chef brought, um, is a sort of a reconsideration these decades later of we haven't solved Hartford's issues and issues of segregation uh, by town and, um, and issues of, of racism and bias. Um, and all of these elements come into play. Um, so... Uh, if we quintupled the amount of money sent to Hartford schools, it might help and it might not. I mean, the entire case was brought uh, on the concept of when you have this concentration of need, um, students get left behind. There are other elements that, that make it impossible to have a successful educational uh, environment. Um, so now we're back. And ironically, the state's first reaction to the chef ruling uh, was the legislature said, okay, we will massively increase spending and we'll get, you know, more teachers and, and more books and not a word about segregation because they, they, you know, the only thing they wanted to do less than spend money was uh, allow, you know, black and Latino Hartford children into their suburban schools. Um, we're now, I don't know if we're back at square one or just the, the you know, merry-go-round has come full circle, but uh, these are, are difficult issues. I don't pretend to have the answer, and, and, and anyone who does, I think, is fooling him or herself. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Hartford Current reporters Matt Kaufman and Vanessa Delatore are here as we explore the Current's recent series on the Chef case, more than 20 years after the original court decision. Coming up, two principals will join us to talk about how the system created to integrate Hartford schools has led to some unexpected consequences, as we've discussed. We're also going to take your calls, 860-275-7266.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. What's changed since 1989 when a group of parents sued the state of Connecticut with the goal of ending racial isolation in Hartford schools? It's been more than 20 years since the state Supreme Court ruled on the side of the plaintiffs of Sheff versus O'Neill. The decision started Connecticut on a voluntary path to tackle segregation in Hartford schools. Earlier this month, the Hartford Current published an in-depth series on Sheff. Reporters Matt Kaufman and Vanessa De La Torre are here to talk about the, what they're reporting uncovered. You can join the conversation, too. Do you have a student in a Hartford Hartford Magnet or Open Choice School. What's been your child's experience? Our studio number, 860-275-7266. And we're going to hear from some principals coming up in, in just a few moments. I do want to take a call now. Um, Josh is calling from Hartford. Josh, you're on the show. Hi. Good, um, I'm not supposed to say good morning. Whatever. Um, <laughs> good day. <laughs> good day to you all. Um, I do. I have a child in the Trinity Magnet. I live in Hartford. And it seems to me, I mean, we're talking about this like it's a very difficult riddle. And one of your journalists there just said that anyone who thinks they have the answer is fooling themselves. So maybe I'm fooling myself. But I think the answer is simple. And it's just that we don't want to do it. I mean, the, the genius of Chef was not that integration, per se, was magic. It was that resources and advocacy for better schools followed wealthy white people because they have the time and the influence to make the schools where their kids go better. So the idea was if you could mix them in with poor folks of color, those schools would get better. And that has worked to an extent. But those people always have two good choices. They have the beautiful magnet schools or they have their nice schools in Glastonbury or West Hartford or wherever it is. So you can only get so many of them. The trouble is that we give them that choice, we as a system. I mean, ultimately, the, the school districts are drawn on town lines, and the towns are economically and racially segregated. So we have racial segregation of schools. And as long as people have that option to buy in by buying a nicer house into a nicer school district with more resources, many of them are going to take it, and the folks who don't have that option some of them are always going to get left out. So the fact that, as um, one of your guests said, the suburbs have never supported uh, regional schools kind of shouldn't matter. White folks in the South didn't support integration. And what we said was, well, you're wrong and you're selfish, so too bad. And I think we should say that here. We should have regional schools, and we would solve this problem. Josh, thank you for your comment. Matt, did you want to respond? Um, so... Right. So if the legislature is not going to do that. So it would sort of fall to the courts to do that. Um, the, the one time uh, that the plaintiffs went back to court kind of early in the case and thought, um, you know, the state was not moving quickly enough and, and we'd like the court to take a more active role, um, they actually got pushback from the courts and sort of said, you know, voluntary systems, I think, are always preferable to mandatory systems. Um, uh, you know, people look at Boston and, and freak out at the thought of sort of uh, any kind of mandated integration. I think what critics would say is, sure, dissolve, uh, you know, the town lines or the district lines between West Hartford and Hartford, and you will have one district uh, from which wealthier families, you know, flee either farther away or into private schools. Um, um, Josh is absolutely right that were the court to say, the problem here is that town district lines are coterminous with uh, uh, school district lines, and we need to dissolve that. Um, would there be riots in the street or you know, schools set on fire? Um, I, I don't know. But certainly uh, he's right that at least voluntarily um, we're having a great deal of trouble and that a mandatory solution uh, might push the needle but might bring its own problems.
This is where we live. You can join the conversation at 860-275-7266. I want to take one more call. Megan from Southington. Megan, you're on the show. Hi. Um, so I'm Megan Ekinarpa. I'm a 10th grader attending the Academy of Aerospace and Engineering. So um, I don't want to kid myself and pretend like I know economic disputes and how this works, but I can only speak for the not only the educational purposes I've got out of my school, but also the social purposes. I live in Southington where it is majority white and me being Indian wasn't really a help. I was bullied a lot. And so coming into the Academy of Aerospace Engineering, having a team that was willing to listen to what I was saying, and more importantly, understanding that like being different is not something that um, is wrong and actually coming to terms that being different, being who you are is more important than the struggles through it. So overall, you know, uh, the Chef versus O'Neill case, Brown v. Board of Education, Plessine Ferguson, these cases have understood and helped our new generation realize where we're going to be. And uh, working with Chef versus O'Neill will help the new new generation appreciate ourselves in a time where we need to do such a thing. Well, Megan, thank you for your perspective. I wanted to turn now to two administrators uh, who work within the schools that we're talking about. Uh, Karen Lott, principal at Thurman L. Milner School in Hartford, Connecticut. Also, Julie Goldstein, principal at Breakthrough Magnet School, the South Campus in Hartford. Karen and Julie, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. And Karen, I wanted to to start with you because Vanessa um, reported on Milner School. Tell us about Milner School. Milner School is a very unique uh, school environment. We sit uh, right in the midst of the North End of Hartford, um, and we service students that all live in the North End. So we're not a typical school where you'll see buses rolling up every day and students onboarding or boarding buses. Um, All of our students walk to school. Um, And last year when there was some talk about the Promise Zone, uh, some data that was released around our families indicated that our average household income was about $12,000. So our students um, come from families and homes that have a lot of stressors um, and are dealing with a lot of issues of just mere survival. Um, And our students um, bring just a mirage of themselves uh, to the school building every day. So we really have to address not just the educational component, but also the social emotional needs of our students. And what are the challenges within your school? Teacher turnover in terms of class size? Uh, Vanessa reported on just resources. I mean, everyone likes to think that when they send their child to school, that it's going to be an environment that's welcoming. But mm-hmm. that's not always the case in terms of just when the infrastructure, the walls or the what's in a room, mm-hmm. um, it takes away from that that learning environment. Sure. Um, And so one of my uh, main emphasis has really been on creating an environment that's conducive to teaching and learning. So making sure that the environment is welcoming, um, that we have the human capital resources to make sure that our students feel connected with the adults in the building. Um, Beyond that, we face some of the real challenges of your typical low-performing school. Um, High teacher turnover, large percentages of new teachers who are new to the teaching profession um, who take on the task of educating some of uh, the most challenging students in terms of students that have um, not only social emotional needs but also pretty huge gaps in their academic achievement. Um, So if you look at any of the research around the country about the characteristics of low-performing schools, um, you would see that at Milner. We have a 100% free lunch uh, program at our school. Our students also uh, are with us from some of them from 8.45 in the morning till 6 p.m. as we try to provide enrichment programs for them after school as well. Um, And we have a body of really hardworking, committed teachers 
um, who, in just their very human element, sometimes get overwhelmed um, with the challenges that they face every day in the classroom. Um, you're obviously very um, positive about your staff because they're, again, doing the work every day. Um, but many of them first-year teachers, and then how are they able to address the challenges, not just within a student's learning, but what's happening in a child's house and um, the socioeconomic factors that mm -hmm. contribute to learning? Mm -hmm. uh, and because we are a small school community, we have 300 students in grades pre-K through eighth grade, our teachers get to know their students and their families very well. Um, and so it is that really true balance of having empathy and not too much sympathy. Um, and still the teachers in the classroom holding students to the expectation that I'm here to teach and you're here to learn. So a very hardworking staff, um, but they definitely face those realities every day of kind of being not just the academic teacher in the classroom, but the cheerleader, the mentor, the coach. Um, and so the work of supporting teachers uh, at Milner really uh, circums, um, is really around helping them feel equipped to do that job. So making sure that they have professional resources, that they have coaching, that they have professional development. Um, and so my job is really to uh, support them and make sure that I can provide them with the resources to make the job possible for them to do. Because we're talking about the legacy of CHEF and the system in place now, again, uh, magnet schools and neighborhood schools and the, the uh, consequence that some children are left behind. They can't get into the school of their choice. Um, when you hear the governor talking about um, his proposal to shift even more money to struggling school districts like Hartford, how would that help you if you're having trouble even getting the experienced teachers that could help your children who have so many challenges in their lives? So I, I think it's not just about monetary resources, but also making sure that we create structures and that we break down some barriers that often impede um, schools that have large numbers of challenging students to be successful. Um, and so it's not just okay to throw more money at it, but we really need to be strategic and we really need to look at what are the pieces and what are those intricate pieces that need to happen, uh, human capital, resources, monetary resources, in order to create a, a great school. And we do know that we can create schools that serve large numbers of students um, that are from uh, poor homes and can create high achieving schools with those students. Um, and I live uh, by that hope every day that that's the work that can actually happen at Milner. Um, so yes, money is needed, but we also need some systemic changes um, that would really encourage um, more of our experienced teachers to take on the challenge of coming to a school like Milner. But when we started the conversation, you mentioned that Milner is a low-performing school. So how does that impact the school when it has a, uh, a title, an unofficial title, in terms of how much money is coming from you know, the state, the Department of Ed, in terms of the resources for a low-performing school? Because isn't the money also um, being reduced? Right. So we've been a recipient for the past five years for funding from the State Department of Education through the Commissioner's Network that really has been targeted for low-performing schools um, and turnaround efforts to change that trajectory of, of a school that has that label of low-performing. Um, and so from that uh, association with the Commissioner's Network, we have been afforded a lot of resources 
that we would not otherwise have, perhaps just through our general budget um, through Hartford Public Schools. So that funding is ending after five years of having that. So it is a real concern about what happens to some of the resources that we've really been able to create and um, build within our building, like what will happen when that funding uh, does totally go away. I want to turn quickly back to Vanessa Della Torre, who spent some time reporting on the Milner score. You're talking to parents, to students, um, some who want a better opportunity at a magnet school, but again, because of the way the system um, works out, they're unable to get a spot in one of these schools. What is their feeling on Chef? Well, you know, we've heard about how amazing the magnet schools are, but the other piece of it, and it's something that um, saddens people in the chef movement, is this other side, the, the resentment side of it, which has also seeped into the chef legacy. This idea of, like, there's a great magnet school in my city, numerous schools. This school might even be in my own neighborhood. It might be down the block, and I can't get in. And in lieu of that, I'm in a neighborhood school where the concentration of need is so high um, that it's overwhelming to everyone at the school. And it really shows how harmful segregation is to the Hartford Neighborhood Schools. And one of the earlier callers talked about, well, is there something the suburbs can do? It's, it's not an easy answer, but in face of institutional racism that is harming children in Hartford, the question for some of the people who are listening in the suburbs is, what privilege are you willing to give up to give these opportunities to Hartford children? I want to turn to someone who understands magnet schools. She's the principal of Breakthrough Magnet School in the South Campus of Hartford. Julie Goldstein, again, welcome uh, to the studio. And and tell us about your school. Breakthrough Magnet School is a pre-K to eighth grade interdistrict magnet school. Our theme is character education. And one of the um, great things about Breakthrough is that it was one of Hartford's first. It was actually founded by a Hartford Public Schools teacher, Norman Newman Johnson, who was also a lead witness in the chef case and um, is really one of the original answers or the solution to what the what chef set out to do. So it's really a privilege and a pleasure to be a part of the school. Um, and we have 360 students. I don't know if I just mentioned that. And they come from um, about half from Hartford, half from over 25 suburban towns. And um, yeah, just it is a pleasure and a privilege to be there every day. Has your school ever had to deal with um, just letting empty seats languish because of the racial quotas that are part of the, the chef integration plan? We have not. But it's something that happens. It is something that happens. It's, some, it's, a, it's a stressor on principles. And it, it isn't for lack of applicants. It really, I think, goes back to the, the State Department's way that, that, the, um, that the students are drawn for enrollment. And Matt, you um, reported on Breakthrough 2, which is related to, I think, Breakthrough Magnet, just a different part of Hartford. Uh, tell us about what they experienced because of that racial quota that needed to be met. All right. So we talked to some uh, teachers who were at a magnet school fair. That uh, In the fall, there are a number of fairs at which parents can sort of go table to table checking out uh, different schools. And we talked to some teachers there who uh, sort of admitted that as they're watching, you know, the families sort of cycling through, 
um, they found themselves sort of compelled to kind of note the, the race and ethnicity of those passing by and talked about, we don't want to do this, but it's something we need in order to meet uh, what she described as our white quota. Um, so I, I don't know if that's quite an unintended consequence of, of Chef, but it's at least um, kind of an awkward element of it. Uh, you know, we, we talked to one education advocate um, that said, look, it's not a surprise that sort of the system is built to attract whites and sort of said that, uh, you know, suburban families are kind of the, the consumers they're seeking because Hartford families are already buying. And so they kind of go out of their way uh, to try to make themselves as attractive as possible to white families. So Breakthrough 2 in the North End um, has had uh, some difficulty, you know, reaching that 25 percent um, uh, level. It, it does not have it now. And we should back up and say and explain how many students actually in Hartford are able to go to magnet schools. Is it, is it half of, of, of the students that are in the population? Um, it, it is not half. There are uh, about, including non-compliant magnet schools, it's, it's a little bit under half. It's, it's probably in the 45, 46 percent. Um, range attend a magnet school. Some of them are not fully compliant. Some of them are counted um, under waivers. So, um, and and that's actually including children going to suburban schools. So, um, out of twenty-one thousand Hartford uh, Black and Latino students, um, there are I think seven thousand and change in magnet schools, um, and about twenty-three hundred in suburban schools through open choice being bused to a variety of towns. And we mentioned compliance. When a magnet school is found to be not compliant, compliant, what happens? Well, they can lose magnet school funding, um, but generally, I don't know that, that any magnet school, um, there are magnet schools that have been demagnetized, uh, that the state or the uh, district or CREC is that this is not going to work. We are not going to be able to get there. Journalism and Media Academy is an example. Um, but uh, the state doesn't want to defund the magnet schools that are already sort of in the hopper. So um, generally what we've seen as schools have become less compliant is an expansion of waivers to compliance so that they're still uh, not only getting their funding but actually counted as compliant. And the state sort of makes the assertion that all of the students in those schools are attending uh, integrated schools when it's not, not quite the truth. I want to take another quick call before we go to break. Uh, Rand's calling from Hartford. Rand, you're on the show. Hi. Uh, I'm a Hartford resident, and I've got a fifth-grade daughter in a Hartford public magnet school, and I've been listening very uh, eagerly to, to the conversation. And I have a question really about where we are with the fundamental message of Chef, uh, and that is, is the idea now that, that Chef was basically right and that integrating our schools along race and class lines remains crucial to getting our Hartford kids the kind of education they need, and if so, do we just need more magnet schools? Or is, is the chef idea that we needed to integrate schools racially in order to have high-quality education actually wrong-headed? I know plenty of people who believe that, who even think it's insulting to maintain that we have to sprinkle in white or suburban kids in order to make things work. So do, do magnet schools achieve this better educational result only because the student body is specifically constructed for it, selected by kids from the more educated and aspirational backgrounds, and the neighborhood schools become collection vessels for everyone else? Or can those neighborhood schools actually attain the same quality education as magnet schools? And, and if so, how? Is this just a facilities and resource problem, or is it more than that? 
And those are the, the, the big questions of the hour. Thank you, Rand, uh, for your, your comment. I'll go to back to the administrators. Again, I'll speak with uh, Julie Goldstein first. What's a better way? Great question. I do think that I, just speaking for what my own personal experience in working with in a magnet school, we ask ourselves questions like that every day. I, we work side by side with our Hartford, Hartford. I'm part of the Hartford Public Schools, so we get trained together. We have the same meetings. Um, all We know that our, we have equal talent. We have equal um, effort, commitment, and passion in all of our Hartford schools. And I think that the intentional, the intentionality of the enrollment does play a, a part that whether it's um, a, a high achieving parent or a parent who has done some shopping and has made some choices and said th that I want for my school a character education theme for my child, that that is one factor that is different than when you live in your neighborhood and you go to the school that is within walking distance of, of your home. And that um, that theme that we have and that all of the magnet schools have a theme really does, I think, um, bring students and teachers together. The, the staff that we have is all equally focused on our theme. And I think those are some, some differences in, in possibly between the magnet concept and a school that's a neighborhood school. We have to take a break. We're going to continue this conversation in just 90 seconds. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about Chef versus O'Neill. The state Supreme Court ruled more than 20 years ago that Connecticut began a voluntary plan to desegregate Hartford schools. In the years since, the plaintiffs and the state have returned to court many times to revise that agreement. Um, in studio with me are principals Karen Lott and Julie Goldstein. Karen with uh, Milner School in Hartford. Julie with Breakthrough Magnet School in the south campus of Hartford. Also, Hartford Current reporters Matt Kaufman and Vanessa Della Torre. And joining the conversation now, Elizabeth Horton-Chef, the lead plaintiff in Chef versus O'Neill, also co-chair of the Chef Movement Coalition. Elizabeth Welcome to the show. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, we wanted to get your thoughts as the lead plaintiff. We started the hour talking about comments that Governor Malloy had made um, earlier this week that he had lost faith in desegregation efforts. How do you respond to that? Well, I think that's a bad commentary um, for the leader of our state who, at a time when um, so much is needed, uh, effort is needed to bring our country together that he is shying away or backing off of providing quality integrated education in our state. So it's a great disappointment, and I'm hoping that that does not indicate that our governor is a separatist. We were talking with... Um some other administrators. We've heard from some parents. Another original plaintiff in the case, Denise Best, um, spoke to The Current. She says, um, looking at how the system has been created, where you have these neighborhood schools where children are trying to get into magnets and an open choice, they're unable, and you have the children that can are able to go to magnet schools where they have the two separate systems, she says that maybe it's time to compromise on integration, to give more of these Hartford students a chance at a better education. You know, what is your response to that? What, what, in your view, needs fixing? Well, let, let's back up a little bit on this. 
Um, yeah, I think I think there's some basic things that need to be addressed. Uh, number one, um, the state chose to implement the case the way it, it is, by which I mean the, the state Supreme Court said this is unconstitutional, the current racial isolation and equal unequal educational opportunities for children in the city of Hartford is uneducated, uh, un- unconstitutional, and that the state had to fix it. Well, the state chose this system. This is the state's system. We, I would have preferred regionalism, um, looking at shared resources and uh, open access. Uh, however, the state chose this way. Um, when you say what, you know, Denise, Denise Best was one of our um, original plaintiffs, when you say that she's changed her mind, I, I'm not, I have had no conversation with Denise about that. However, the whole issue is to provide quality integrated education for students. National resource uh, um, research has shown that um, children who attend racially diverse learning environments have a positive impacts on both academic achievement uh, and lifelong engagement. So I, I think that we, if you're asking me, should we give up on integration? The answer would be no. So how, so how do we fix the system, um, Elizabeth, if we do know that there are children that are trying uh, to get to these schools that are more diverse, but they're, are left, they're left on waiting lists because they don't fit the particular race for that particular balance to get into that school? You see, once again, I, as, as, as the current very lopsided expose of, of Chef, um, you're going straight to a question about um, leaving people out without asking why are people left out. Well, if the state opened access through removing caps, on how many students can come into school. If the state was more on point with settlements so that folks would know what schools were open um, and where they were going to open, if the state did its job in promoting, helping local schools promote diversity, I think we would be in a very different I wanted to have the reporters respond. Vanessa De La Torre, can we talk about um, what some of what Elizabeth Horton Chef is saying, that the state had done its job? Um, but again, there are two systems, it seems to be. Right. I mean, the chef lawyers, as they argued in our story, point out that it's the chef, the state's responsibility to implement the remedy. And they blame the state for not following through enough. The state will point out, well, we've spent $3 billion dollars on chef magnet schools, on not just the construction, but also operating costs and open choice. This idea of lopsided, of course, we don't agree. I mean, here, people get sensitive when you when you talk about chef and it, the subject isn't only about how great the magnet schools are. It was our obligation two decades after the chef ruling to examine also the thousands of Hartford children left behind. 
And I agree with that. I agree with that. I don't have a problem with having a picture. But to have only one side of the picture, Vanessa, is a disservice. So you never talked about the good things that are going on, the positive things, how our children are doing well in graduating from high school with associate's degrees. None of that was done. You went all to the sensationalist. And I think that that's very poor reporting. And your editorial board came out with an editorial that, that um, balanced the, uh, your, your expose, if you will. However, how many people read that editorial? Well, Elizabeth, I don't want to debate um, whether, um, you, you know, obviously there's feelings about uh, the, the series, but this this is a big issue. This is a complicated discussion. That's why the, the, the plaintiffs, uh, we keep you keep hearing you returning to court to try to fix the system. I wanted to just go back to, to Matt Kaufman before we run out of time. What are the next steps? So right now the, the plaintiffs in the state are in uh, negotiations. There's a agreement that sort of spells out how many open choice seats and, you know, what's the uh, target for number of students in integrated settings and the like. That expires on June 30th. Um, The governor has said he doesn't expect that a new agreement will be reached before that expires. And the plaintiffs have said, well, if that's where we're headed, we will go back to court before it expires um, and ask a judge to intervene. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're almost out of time, but I, I did want to go back to Principal Karen Lott from Thurman uh, Milner School in Hartford. You know, Karen, so often when uh, people talk about Hartford and the kids, they just assume that all of them are doing poorly, that there's just too many challenges for these kids to succeed. What would you tell them? I would say the, the challenges that the students present are just a part of who the, student are, who the students are. It is our job as the educational system to figure out how to educate all of our students as they present themselves in schools each and every day. And to do that, we really need to look at systems. We really need to look at these class issues. We really need to look at race issues. And we really need to have some honest conversations that the students at Milner deserve a great education and to have a great school as every student in Hartford deserves. So we got to still keep having these conversations. I want to thank you, Karen Lott, Principal at Thurman Milner School in Hartford, Julie Goldstein at Breakthrough Magnet School Principal, Elizabeth uh, Horton-Chef, who joined us by phone. Thank you so much for your perspective. And Vanessa Delatore and Matt Kaufman, we knew we'd run out of time. A lot to talk about. We appreciate your work um, and your investigative series that we can go to either current.com. We'll also tweet out the links. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.